Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron, and admittedly a political polling enthusiast. And that's what we're talking about in this podcast. Well, kind of. We're taking a look at the inherent distance between politicians and the people who elect them. We talked with two social scientists whose research on political polling tells us a lot more about democratic participation, public policy, and political priorities than you might expect. So let's start out with an idea that you're probably very familiar with, but a term that might not ring a bell. The idea of a democratic deficit is prevalent uh, in the U.S. It's also a big topic in Europe. That's Larry Jacobs, a political scientist at the University of Minnesota. He stopped by the LSE recently and he spoke with us about this idea of a democratic deficit between politicians and voters. And it's the idea that popular sovereignty is under assault that the ability of everyday citizens to drive public policy is on the run and declining. And you see it, um, I think, in Europe in the backlash against the EU. Um, We've seen some uh, really quite fantastic elections all over Europe. Uh, In America, we've seen it with the Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders campaigns that are quite extraordinary in the extent to which They have uh, challenged the political establishments on the left and the right and gotten so much support. This is really an unusual time. And I think it reflects a genuine frustration on the part of everyday citizens that their governments no longer listen to them and are in the business of trying to manipulate them. Or as one of my students said, um, he's tired of being jerked around. At any political rally in 2016, you're probably going to hear a couple different versions of this deficit. But how do you study this? Well, Larry spent 14 years diving into presidential archives. To the inner sanctum of one of the most important and powerful political figures in the world, which is the president. Now, usually the presidents operate in a vacuum of secrecy. You don't really know what their real plans are. You hear them publicly, but we know that uh, behind closed doors, they're they probably got something up their sleeves. And we were able to use archival research to go in and study uh, a number of presidents from uh, John Kennedy through Richard Nixon, and and, and we've gone on and studied H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and then we're now just starting on George W. Bush. And that really gives you the advantage of knowing not just what we're seeing, that, that sense that I think many of us have that we're being jerked around and that our views about policy are being ignored, but you get to see exactly how a president is viewing the electorate. And frankly, the picture that comes out is a bit depressing. Now, before we paint that depressing picture, let's talk about how Larry actually analyzed and dissected this data. Basically, there are two different approaches that most scholars take when studying presidents. One is a more archive-focused storytelling approach. That's your qualitative research. And the other is more quantitative. Researchers who use this method take advantage of publicly available data, like votes in Congress or public opinion polls from news outlets like CBS or New York Times. We took a different approach. We went into the White House. We did the archival research. We also used secondary research and interviews with some of the key figures uh, in some of the administrations. And then we used the private polls that presidents themselves actually collected. 
Um, and while each one of those things has been done in the past, to bring them together and triangulate uh, these different bodies of research, I think is quite unique, uh, particularly being able to tell a story about the motivations of presidents based on archival research to really understand how they were thinking about their political challenges in their terms, and then to turn around and use quantitative methods, regression, multivariate research, to study the relationship between the president's private polling and the president's public positions. So you're, you're kind of coming at the question in a, in a variety of different ways, getting the benefit of each perspective without um, the limitations of just relying on one. So by researching the actual opinions and the decision-making processes and the conversations of the presidents, can we tell if our commanders-in-chief recognize the democratic deficit? Do they actually notice that there's a distance between their policy priorities and the opinions of the people? Well, I don't think presidents view uh, their strategies as part of a democratic deficit. Mm -hmm. They see it as their effectiveness mm -hmm. as a political leader. Um, presidents, like other senior political figures, are always in the position of balancing competing sets of constituents and political objectives. And um, in the case of presidents, such as, for instance, Ronald Reagan, he was a guy who was committed to being a pretty strong conservative, but he also realized the practical politician that to win elections and to sustain his new right agenda, he would need to build a more enduring coalition that would include independents, that would mobilize um, new groups of voters, such as born-again Baptists, uh, that would excite um, constituents uh, who might be supportive, but not intensely so, such as the affluent, who might give campaign contributions as well as political support. Um, now, in catering to those very distinct subgroups, Reagan didn't see it as a democratic deficit. He saw it as an opportunity to do something unique politically, to build a new coalition, a coalition which... 35 years later is still, you know, there. Um, we'll see if it continues. Okay, so let's zero in on Ronald Reagan, 40th president of the United States, elected to two terms, and a big fan of jelly beans. Larry went into the presidential archives and got the polling that Reagan's team had commissioned. These are the polls that the Reagan and the senior aides were looking at. And as you can imagine, these aren't easy documents to get your hands on. In the case of Reagan, it required... Uh, freedom of information requests. And looking at the president's internal polling was only one direction of their research. The other direction was to go into the archives and particularly looking at the political strategy uh, within the Reagan and the White Houses uh, for other presidents uh, to understand how they were understanding their strategic moment and the path forward for them so that we were not inserting or assuming certain motivations but actually could see how the presidents understood their challenges and how they understood what, what the incentives were for them. Okay, so they've got the polling data and the internal deliberation. They then added another layer, the public statements of the presidents. What did the president actually say on the issues that they were polling on? And we tracked across uh, three or four presidents all of their public statements related to public policy, or many of them. And we coded them in a pretty rigorous content analysis so that we would have um, a sense of what presidents were saying publicly. And we can compare it to the public opinion data 
they were collecting privately, and then use the confidential political strategy sessions that were also going on to try to explain the connections between the private polling and the public statements. And here's when that depressing picture comes into focus. You might think that presidents are influenced by the kind of overall tilt of the country at a particular moment. During the Reagan presidency, there was a sense that the new right was surging, that the country moved in a conservative direction. That's a pretty common description of that era. And instead, what we're finding is that those kind of general ideological orientations didn't have a consistent influence. In some areas, it it kind of crops up, um, such as in defense spending. Um, But more consistently, what we found is that the policy preferences of the particular uh, sets of politically important uh, groupings, whether it was the affluent or the born-agains or uh, other groups, that that was what mattered. So in in other words, Reagan wasn't just an ideological politician, though clearly he was a conservative. Um, He was also a very practical politician who was looking to stitch together a coalition based on the policy views of distinct groups that he and the White House felt were, were, um, were crucial to their ability to put together an enduring coalition. Okay, whoa. Larry's research shows that in Reagan's case, his policy priorities, positions, and actions didn't match up with the general opinion of the public. But his policies did match up with key groups who he and his strategists believed were essential for building a conservative coalition that would last well beyond his presidency. I think the challenge with Ronald Reagan is the belief in Ronald Reagan and the practicality of the man. Mm-hmm. He was a practicing politician who was, um, to a large extent, pragmatic, even though he was driven by an ideology. I think when you step back, what you see is a politician who was committed to smaller government, who was committed to uh, policy changes that tended to most benefit those who were higher income groups, um, as well as to policy changes that would expand, in his terms, liberty, meaning uh, less government intrusion but also a politician who realized for him to be able to pursue that policy, he would need to be able to talk and win over uh, swing voters. He would also need to be able to identify and attract new groups of supporters. It's very telling that it's during the Reagan administration that the social conservatives, the moral majority and others, comes into being as a coherent and politically active and important force. That wasn't just a natural occurrence. It really reflects the confluence of the aspirations of the organizers of megachurches and the moral majority movement, as well as the practical political needs of Ronald Reagan looking for new coalition partners to help. And so you get this this very interesting uh, amalgam of conservative positions that Reagan adopts out of belief, but also out of a need uh, to win elections and have a force. So there are two different ways to view the policy shifts that politicians make because of polling. One's a little more positive than the other. You could say that consistent polling allows politicians to receive consistent updates on what the country wants him or her to do. It's sort of like democracy in real time. The president sees people want policy X to pass, and so he pushes for it. From one perspective, this approach reduces the distance between the will of the people and the person who actually signs a bill into law. On the other hand, 
you could see the use of polling as market research and the president's policy shifts as a constant rebranding to maintain high support. But at the end of the day, it's really just superficial. So which approach did Reagan take? Well, it's kind of more complicated than the dichotomy that I've just mentioned. I think there's no doubt that Reagan was attentive to the polling. Uh, we just find a lot of evidence of that. But I think it's important to appreciate that But that this attentiveness was not to Americans overall. It was a distinct groups. When Reagan was responding to the affluent, he didn't even care about middle-income or lower-income Americans. He he often didn't even track their attitudes. So, yeah, he was responding, but he was responding to a distinct segment of the public. And I think when you hear people complaining about politicians not listening to them, uh, probably some of those folks are middle-income folks who uh, are wondering why politicians aren't paying attention. In Reagan's case, it's true. So that's one view of polling from the Oval Office. But let's take a different perspective. The people being researched in political polls. Conventional wisdom says, and a lot of research has been based on this idea, that we make political decisions by considering politicians' positions, judging who will make policies that benefit me or who's going to be the best leader. But that's a sort of really wrong way to think about how a lot of people see politics. That's Daniel Lorison, a sociologist here at the London School of Economics, who sat down with my co-host Sophie Donselman. Um, so the analogy that I make is that, you know, I wasn't raised going to art museums or sporting events. And if you ask me, do I prefer Manet or Monet, I don't have an opinion. I really don't. And I don't feel qualified to have an opinion. And I feel sort of put on the spot. And, you know, I, you know, it's it's uncomfortable. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's I have the sense um, less now that I have a Ph.D., but certainly growing up, I had the sense that, you know, fancy art was something that other people did. Um, and I think that sense that politics is something that other people do is very strong and very uh, class-linked, so that people with less resources feel very distant from, many of them feel very distant from politics. So how does this link up with polling? When uh, people are given political opinion questions, they're much more like people with less income and less education and less of really any kind of resource, uh, depending on how you look at it. Uh, are more likely to say they don't know when they're asked a political opinion question. So that's, mm. to me, evidence of a different kind of relationship to right. political expression. And in order to, to give a don't-know answer to survey questions, you actually have to sort of refuse to do what the survey researcher wants you to do. Um, the survey researcher says, you know, on a scale of one to five, where one is very conservative and five is very liberal, please pick where you fit. Um, so you have to go off script to say, mm. I don't know. Um, so that's a pretty, based, I would argue, on a pretty strong sense that this is not something you're qualified for or ready to do or willing to do. Um, and we obviously can't tell, you know, based on just what's recorded in the survey data, why somebody is saying they don't know. Um, but we can see that it's not simply their um, education or their sort of uh, intelligence or, or skill set. It's something else going on. And there are much more grave implications beyond skewed data in a political poll. Daniel's research shows that this perspective, this distance between people of low socioeconomic status and politicians, and even more generally the political process at large, actually serves as a barrier to political participation. 
to voting. There's a lot of research and there's been a lot of work sort of focusing on practical barriers. So uh, long lines at voting polling places or knowing how to register or sort of uh, having time to to spend waiting in lines. And those are all real barriers that may, may make some difference. But there's actually a growing body of research that shows when you reduce those barriers, you don't actually uh, make participation in politics more equal may actually make it less equal. Mm. Um, so what happens is that uh, the people who are already inclined to vote find it much easier, and more of them make it. But right. the people who feel like politics is something that other people do, the fact that the lines are shorter doesn't change that. Right. Um, there's, you know, there's an analogy to be made to um, when art museums become free, the uh, the class composition of people who go to art museums doesn't change radically. Mm. Um, so it's the same sort of. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's the same sort of thing. So if making voting easier doesn't seem to encourage people from a wider set of socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds to actually go to the polls to actually vote, should cities and states keep working to remove these more physical barriers? I think it should be as easy as possible to vote. I don't think mm-hmm. it's a bad idea to you know have vote by mail and to have as many people as possible participating and to have short voting sh- short lines and so on. But I think what if you want you know, greater participation from disadvantaged people, the solution is not sort of remove structural barriers like that so much as it is figure out how to make people feel connected to politics. So here's the next basic question. How do we do that? How do we change the way that different people relate to politics? How do we make sure that everyone sees politics as something they do and therefore get involved in the democratic process? Well, it starts with a basic strategic decision that campaigns make and changing that. The way that campaigns reach out to potential voters is they focus on people they believe are likely to vote. Who is likely to vote? People who voted before, people who are on average better off, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, you know, uh, there's research showing that that exasper- exacerbates inequalities in political participation. Um, if you only... Uh, remind people to vote who are pretty likely to vote and who are on average better off than the people who are worse off are not getting reminded or asked and they're less likely to vote. And it turns out that a little bit of effort could actually have a significant impact. Um, There's great research by Lisa Garcia-Bodoya at UC Berkeley showing that people that people who've never voted before when they're asked by a neighbor uh, there's a 10 percent increase in the chance that they'll vote which is a huge effect for sort of social science type experiments mm. just sort of having initiatives that connect people to politics and it doesn't have to be huge and complicated it just mm. has to be uh, you know asking people to vote um, getting people connected to the political process in various ways well that sounds great why isn't every campaign doing this Obviously, it takes time and money, the most crucial components of a campaign, to recruit volunteers who will reach out to more people. But if it's producing votes in unexpected areas, if it's basically creating new voters, that's exactly the return on investment that political strategists are looking for. And actually, that's exactly the kind of decision my coworkers and I were making when I worked on congressional campaigns in the U.S. Who are your voters, and how can we get them to vote? That's why I find Daniel's next point particularly discouraging political parties are not particularly interested in having everybody vote because then they mm. have to cater to the needs of everybody and it works much better for political parties who are inter- who are sort of you know in their terms uh, representing the interests of the the ruling class or the relatively well off etc to be able to just focus on a small swath of the electorate um, so i think that sort of i mean 
I could be too cartoonish about their argument. I don't think political parties or, or political actors are sitting in back rooms smoking and saying, ha, <laughs> let's, you know, let's only have to make, you know, let's, let's keep disenfranchising people so our lives are easier. It's not that kind of conspiracy theory. I, I don't think that's right, but I think it's probably true that it's, you know, if you have a model for running elections that works and for running politics that works, you might not be that motivated to figure out how to get more people to the electoral, you know, to the voting booth. That's not their concern, right? Mm. If you're a politician, your concern is getting reelected, not making democracy better, necessarily. And we can see ripples of this in the current 2016 election. The strongest predictor of uh, support for Donald Trump, you know, uh, you know, the degree to which you hold authoritarian values was a pretty strong predictor, uh, whether or not you have a college degree, whether you're white. But the strongest predictor was whether you agreed with the que- the statement, uh, politicians don't care about people like me or something like that. So um, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of people who have a sense and they're not wrong that politics has not particularly been um, Politicians have not particularly been talking to them. Part of why he's able to be so appealing is because is because he's right that politics hasn't reached out to lower income, less educated uh, communities. So we've come full circle back to this idea that exists in the distance in between politicians and the public. Are politicians listening to the public? Does listening to public opinion polls count? And whether the politicians are or aren't listening, this research says that it's actually the perceived distance that keeps people from getting involved in the democratic process in the first place. So I'm joined now by my co-host Sophie Donzelman. Hey, Sophie. Hey there. And Chris Gilson. Hi, Denise. So, Sophie, you had a chance to sit down with Daniel when he came in and talked with us. Uh, What really stuck with you from that interview? Well, I took a listen to the recording of the interview, and there was a lot of humming and hawing and a lot of agreement (laughs) with um, Professor Lorison. But I think one thing that really stuck was his mention of barriers to voting, and that's something that, um, as someone who's been fortunate to go to university and had a great education and politically active parents, you can forget that there are real barriers that are in your way to go to the polling place. These can be financial, whether you have to take time off of work, um, to go vote, if you have to pay for childcare, all these different kind of factors can influence whether you can go and cast your vote. Um, and this was interesting because we spoke to Daniel back in February, maybe? Yeah, um, And that was kind of in the midst of more primaries than we're seeing now. And in New York, there was a huge scandal when there were long lines and broken machines, and people had to wait around three hours just to vote. And in Arizona, which was also in the same month, people also had to wait just extreme amount of times. Um, and what struck me is that we see these kind of barriers to voting in practice, or in studies, rather, um, and how they can affect, but in the primaries, which isn't even the election itself, but in the primaries, we saw real obstacles um, that people complained about, but that still aren't fixed. Just to kind of jump in there, aren't the primaries, aren't they run by, aren't the parties private organizations? So if you're thinking They're run about... by ha- the parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you think about, it's not like the Federal Elections Commission, which is the national level. This is like a private organization, yeah. so how still, are you going no, to... No, 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 it's still no. run by, like, the county clerks and everything. But they're, they're political still... offices, aren't they? Sometimes, in some from, places. Yeah. It depends on but the state all. and the county, not all. But, but it still is run by, like, the election, the local election commission, though. It is obscene, oh. though, that we, like, we funnel so much money into campaign ads, 
but then we can't afford to make sure that the machines that we vote with are working. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, one, one thought I, I had, and I, which was really interesting in terms of, he talked about, you know, people aren't brought up to be the kind of people that actually vote. And I sort of thought, well, so my parents like brought my brother and I up to, to vote because they were very super political themselves when they were in their 20s. And so it was always going to be, you were just going to vote. And like, there was kind of no, almost no choice, really. And so I just wanted to ask you both. Did you have a similar experience in your upbringing? Because I think, I presume, I'm fairly certain oh, yeah. you guys are the kind yeah. of people who actually vote. Did your parents kind of, what, did, what, did, what was that like? Did they take you to the polls? Did they sort of... Oh, yeah, definitely. I have very vivid memories of my mom taking me with her when I could barely see over the, the standing desk of where you'd punch in the cards. And uh, she would explain to me what she was doing and who she was voting for and even little commentary on, I hate this person or that person's great. And, uh, and I even had kind of a weird perspective on it as well because since I've been alive my dad has been in elected office in Illinois so he's a an, what we call an alderman he's on the city council and so there every few years I would get to go with my mom usually um, and she would vote for my dad so that was kind of another thing I mean it, and the type of election that he was running in as well he often didn't have a challenger but even when he did it was maybe four or five hundred people voting in our ward in our district city council district so I always grew up with a fundamental understanding that every vote counts in a truly significant way. So I always grew up like with a sense of agency as a as a participant in democracy, which I think is a big thing that is absent from those people who see the political process, look at it and say anything I do simply will not influence what's going yeah. on. There's a complete lack of agency. Yeah. So what was your experience? Um I lived in Florida for the 2004 election, oh, man. and um, <laughs> I was a, I was a part of this group called Kids for Carrie, which was really just um, I'm pretty sure like this like oh, child labor sorry. ring because <laughs> we had these staplers and we'd make like lawn signs. Um, okay, and please then, tell me you have a badge or something. I do. I literally um, do. Okay, we're gonna add that to the show notes. We're I gonna actually, take a picture of it and add it to the show yeah, notes. Yeah, because I'm going home this weekend okay. to Holland, yeah. and it's still on our bulletin yeah. board. Okay. But it would be like, oh well, my mom knows George W. Bush. Like that's who we're voting for. And I was like, well, I'm part of Kids for Carrie. I so. would watch that reality TV show. <laughs> yeah. I would watch a reality TV show of kids in sixth Florida, graders. sixth graders. Yeah. Debating politics. That would be... With buttons. With, yeah, with, exactly. That would be <laughs> my... I mean, it, honestly, it's not very far off from what we see right now. No. So. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> cool. Uh, okay, well, well, getting back to just the main discussion, <laughs> bringing us as, as much as I, I would love... I mean, we could do a whole podcast on Kids for Carrie, and we may well do. <laughs> um, just to, to bring back to... So talking about what uh, Larry Jacobs was saying in terms of how presidents respond to polling, I thought it was really interesting because they've talked recently now with the election about lots of noise and fluctuations in polling. You know, one poll says one thing. So is it actually sensible for a president to govern based on what that poll of that week says? If, if so, it might be saying something else. Yeah, I, I have a really, I feel really torn about this because I've, I've worked for some elected officials who don't use polling as, as, as direction. They're not like, oh, okay, here's a little cheat sheet on what the public thinks. It's more of like, okay, this is insight to how people are feeling on certain issues. It's informative. You can't talk to every single voter every single day of the year, and particularly outside of election years, you just don't have the budget to have staff to be in, t in touch with them. So you use polling as sort of an indicator of like, all right, what would people prefer that I do as their elected official? So on one hand, there is this sort of sense of real-time democracy where people are being, you know, through representative polling, 
they're being represented by their public official who's taking account of that and not completely disregarding the way the public looks or thinks. But the negative side to that is that it's more like it can be like marketing, basically, you know, where politicians are just basically like rebranding themselves to be more palatable to whatever the public thinks in that moment. And then they're just sort of like, you know, a kite in the wind and they have no real values or ideology or direction themselves and they're just sort of going to do whatever makes them popular. So that, I mean, I, I've, I've always been very torn about that because it can be a very useful tool to stay in touch with your constituency, but it can be manipulated into a way that's really anti-democratic and manipulative. I'd agree with you on the manipulative bit, but also that you're right in that it shows what the constituency thinks, but it's often like, this is what women think, and this is what Hispanics think, and it's broken down into kind of segmented groups that alienate other groups and make it very, I don't know, kind of discriminatory in a way. You so know? would you say that it would be better to have sort of more, an overall view or more of an intersectional view, like this is what black women think, or how would you, how would you propose to reframe it if, if, if you could... That's a good question, but I mean, like, I don't know, like, yeah, I feel uncomfortable thinking that if I were to participate in a survey pool, my response would just be like, oh, age of this white woman thinks this, Uh, you know? And I think that's what leads to, like, what you were saying, Denise, some pandering, some manipulation, um, and just... But at the same time, I mean, what's, what's the alternative? If you, if you, for a second, assume that these elected officials are not cold-hearted, like power hungry just aiming to win the popularity contest type of people and they sincerely do want to have a sense of what people are thinking where they're going what do they do what do you mean i mean like, like how do how did i mean how do you use the tech the modern technology of polling and even more um the different research methods that you can kind of get you know not just telephone polls but online polls and all these different things how do you use that in a responsible way to lead better? Because I think, I think it can be used to lead well and to completely, if you get a poll back and your constituency all hates this one bill, then are you just supposed to ignore that and be like, you know what, forget them, I'm gonna do what I want. And you know, that's not, that's not democratic either. Like I agree with you, I, like totally on board with that as long as it's your constituency. And not like, you know what, the wealthy donors think this. And that's what we should which is go what, with. Yeah, which yeah. is what Larry was saying the that Reagan, Reagan did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> By picking out those people. And that goes back to a point that I found really depressing in Daniel Lorison's research about that the decisions campaign staffers make to prioritize certain voters over other voters exacerbates the inequality of political influence even and political participation. Because when you think about, I mean, so he, he, he acknowledged that he was sort of like, he didn't want to create a cartoon of those people in smoke-filled room, <laughs> like chuckling like, oh, we're not gonna talk to poor people this election. Because it's, it really isn't like that. You know, we, you really, I mean, I was working as a Democrat. Our goal is to get as many people to vote as possible, but you're limited by time, money, and volunteers. If you don't have enough time and you don't have enough resources to reach out to every single person, you have to focus on those people who are most likely to vote. And the problem with this is that there's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy of the people who you talk to are going to be the ones who are most likely to vote. And the people who you don't talk to are going to get more and more disengaged. Alienated. Alienated. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But 
what do you do with that? How do you bring in? Yeah. The, I mean, do you think just to sort of be a bit topical? Do you think Trump is is it attracting those kind of people? I think so. And so I the people so. that they kind of, which is why sort of thinking about polling, the polls have been kind of all over the place because people just they're not used to polling these kind of well, people. Well, pollsters don't know to who who to target. Yeah. They, I mean, their samples yeah. are off because it's completely brand new voters who are taking part in primaries. And primary voters are interesting because usually you know exactly who they are. Mm. These are people who vote every single year in primaries. And because they're registered, right? Just so, <coughs> mm. think of like in the right. UK, we don't have a primary system. So the idea of having, like being a registered Democrat or a registered Republican or a registered Independent is kind of an odd thought for people. people and not everybody, doing. not every state requires that you register. But the thing is, is that there's also, we have tons of voter data where you can see if people have voted in specific primaries in the past. So for instance, sure. the first election I ever voted in was a Republican primary when I was 18 years old. I was also a poll watcher that year. I got a day <laughs> off school, it was pretty sweet. But it, but you, you know, we know exactly who primary voters are generally. And this year, one reason that pollsters aren't getting it right is because it's shifting. New people are getting involved in it. You know, it really pains me to say this, but it is kind of a great thing to get more and more people involved. And yes, it's people who agree with Trump's policies, which I personally don't, and it's people who, like we've said, well, I mean, the great thing is is that people who weren't voting before are voting now. And so if we're going to keep this country a democracy, that is what we need. I've, I've said exactly this before, that there's actually like I'm, something I'm hurting kind of, inside. <laughs> there's actually something kind of comforting about the fact that the establishment can be upended. That, you know, at the end of the day, if there is a Democratic overwhelming majority of people who want this candidate, then even the most powerful and rich people cannot change that. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, it's just too bad that there's been an element of bigotry involved yeah. in that. To go off on a very slight tangent very quickly, it's in fantastically interesting if you look at the super PAC spending amounts. So Jeb Bush spent yeah. 80 or 90 million. Ted Cruz is about 145 odd million. Donald Trump, eight hundred sixty thousand. Yeah. So yeah. everyone was has been terrified because of Citizens United, this this big money interest coming in, essentially anointing the, who the new president will be. Well, <laughs> that's not it happening this time. Out, yeah. Yeah. Bringing this back to to Daniel Larson in particular, I I think that there is a clear need and space and potential for work to be done in the American political sphere that's focused on bringing new people into the political process. Mm in a way that's a little bit more meeting them where they're at. I think the Obama campaign actually tried to do this quite a bit. They had these neighborhood models, um, and the goal, particularly in 2008, was to get enough people on neighborhood teams so that you spoke to your neighbors. And you would be given a list. You'd have targeted, you know, uh, targeted lists of who you're talking to in a certain neighborhood and go door to door. But then there was also the encouragement just to talk to anybody who you know to pull in anyone else into the process. I don't think that partisan campaigns are the place to do that, though, because at the end of the day, they're going to be completely constricted by winning. Mm. They have to win. They have to be smart with their resources. An organization that's entire goal is to increase voter turnout by 10%, that's their measure of success, is going to have a completely different strategy than a partisan sure. campaign. I think, um, like, Rock the Vote, which was aimed at young people, mm -hmm. um, is kind of a good example of maybe the starting blocks to something like that. There's, there's, yeah, there's this uh, organization called the Bus Federation, and they have uh, state affiliates. So there's one in Colorado called New Era, Colorado, and every single year they register tens of thousands of new voters, and they lobbied to change the voter laws so that 
basically when you turn 16 and get your driver's license that you can pre-register to vote uh, mm -hmm. automatic motor voter stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and then they yeah, you know then they places. go into the schools and work with the kids to get them registered I mean there's a lot of work that is being done but there's a lot more I, I mean there's a lot being focused on kids and youth but there's a whole swath of the population that we're sort of dancing around in this conversation who's just getting forgotten. Mm -hmm. We'd love for you to join our conversation, but this room is kind of small and scheduling would be a mess to get everyone here at the same time. And so let's just use the internet. Tweet at LSE underscore ballpark to share your thoughts on political participation or any of these episodes. In fact, we'll feature your thoughts later this season in an Extra Innings podcast. So we've heard how politicians and voters approach the political process and use information like polling very differently. And we thought, what about those people in the middle? What about the journalists who report on the politicians and disseminate the news to the rest of us? Well, an alum of LSC, Lauren Maffio, helped us put together this next segment. Lauren finished her master's at LSE in gender, media, and culture in 2012, and she's working in Washington, D.C., developing content for a software company. She also sits on the board of directors of Alumni and Friends of the London School of Economics. Lauren spoke with Jamie Weinstein, who's a senior editor at The Daily Caller, a political publication. Jamie is also an LSE alum, having earned his master's in the history of international relations in 2009. Jamie's been covering politics and particularly presidential campaigns, including this current 2016 season, which has been quite a doozy. All right, well, let's dive right into Lauren's interview. So what was your first political campaign that you covered in the U.S., and what was your experience like on the campaign trail for the first time? Well, uh, it was in, actually before I went to grad school in London, I, I did some freelance from the campaign trail in 2008. I went to New Hampshire um, to cover some of the uh, the primary campaign there, I saw Hillary Clinton on the trail, uh, and 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 some of the Republicans as well. Um, and I, I, you know, I should back up a little bit. Before that, I was I was working at a roll call newspaper. I was a collegiate network fellow there. Uh, for uh, was assisted to a guy named Mark Kondracki, and I also wrote for the paper. It's a it's a publication that focuses on Capitol Hill. Uh, and then I did freelance for a year, and during that time was the 2008 election. So I went up a couple times uh, to New Hampshire to cover it. Um, and it was, you know, it's a great experience. You see the candidates uh, kind of uh, raw because they're still trying to work on their pitch and they're, they're working with uh, people on the ground. They're having to meet constituents on the ground in New Hampshire. It's kind of uh, an amazing thing to see because, you know, as the race goes on and eventually some of them become president, they become more and more removed from that kind of experience uh, dealing with constituents close up. But at that point, when, when, when you go see them in New Hampshire that early, uh, you see them interacting oftentimes in very small groups with with voters and trying to uh, pitch their pitch their story and hope that that it appeals to voters. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that earlier that you are a in the stu in the studio newsroom half the time and you're on the trail half the time. How exactly does that work in a typical month for you? Well, it really depends, and it's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't break it up in fifty fifty. It just really depends on on what's going on. Certainly, right now. Uh, with the, the campaign in high gear, uh, I've been traveling to a, a lot of the primary states. I was in Iowa and New, New Hampshire. I just got back from uh, Nevada where the, the, uh, the caucuses were. Um, go to some of the debate sites. So it really depends. Um, I, I've had I have a lot of freedom here to decide where I want to go and, and not go. Uh, so uh, I try to get on the trail uh, quite a bit at this point. 
Um, but it really just depends on what's going on, uh, whether I'm, I'm here in Washington, D.C., being based in Washington, or I'm, I'm traveling around to different different uh, states to follow the campaign. Mm-hmm. Walk us through the day in your life when you're on the campaign trail following candidates, because I would imagine that all of these candidates, in this case, there are several within the Republican race right now, I would imagine that they all have events and rallies that they are hosting and they have constituent events that they try to go to. As a reporter and a senior editor, how do you prioritize which events you're going to attend and which ones you're going to write about? When I go to the primary states like Iowa, in New Hampshire, I try to get a good grasp of all what all the campaigns are doing at that particular time. So I try to go see at least one event uh, from every major candidate. Uh, so basically, you see the schedules that, that they have and, and see where you can get to in kind of uh, in, in a day or two to see all those all those uh, all those events. Now, if I was kind of a uh, a, a reporter on the trail every day following it, you might just have one candidate that you're following all the time, uh, like a lot of lot of reporters on the trail do. Um, but since, you know, I'm not necessarily that type of, of, of reporter, um, I try to get a, a pretty broad uh, idea of what all the campaigns are doing on the trail to see them in, in, in person. So I, I look at the schedule and try, try to fit them all in. What's one word you would use to describe the political campaign trail for most of us who have never been on it before? Well, this year, uh, I, would, I would describe it as uh, bizarre, beyond belief. I know that's more than, than one word with Donald Trump. Donald Trump has kind of changed the nature of the campaign trail this year. Um, you know, previously, people thought that you had to do a lot of retail politics. You had to go to Iowa and New Hampshire uh, and really engage with the voters there one-on-one in small you know, pizza houses, pizza, pizza parlors, and, and, and coffee shops and diners. Uh, but Donald Trump has made this, in a way, uh, a, a much, uh, you know, easier to campaign on television and within large rallies instead of meeting with voters. And he does a little of that. Uh, but he's pro- proven that you maybe not necessarily have to go to every county in Iowa to win the Iowa caucuses. You can uh, come in and do large speeches and fly back to New York at night. And if you're Donald Trump and can get the press, um, you can you can win, or in this case get second place, but been close to winning the Iowa caucuses that way as well. You are a senior editor for The Daily Caller and write regularly for them. You also write for additional titles as well. And you wrote a story for the National Review where you spoke about campaigning for former Virginia Governor Jim Gilmore. And you described that as a process that showed you, quote, how totally and completely Uh worthless the caucus process is, at least as it is carried out on the Republican side in Iowa. Tell us what happened. So this is a... Probably my favorite story ever on the campaign trail. I was in Iowa, uh, and uh, I was actually at a, a party with some reporters uh, the Friday before the caucuses. And uh, one of them said, "You know, you don't have to actually uh, be a member of. You don't have to be from the state to to speak at a caucus in favor of a candidate, and you don't have to be improved by the, even a campaign." Now, Jim Gilmore, for those who might not know, and I would say that's probably most people for good reason, was running for president, but no one knew because he barely campaigned, and certainly not in Iowa. And it became kind of a joke on Twitter that every time a candidate dropped out, Jim Gilmore was getting one step closer to the nomination, even though he was nowhere near the nomination. So I decided in Iowa as a, as a you know, a, a, 
fun experience for me, but also a good story because I participated in the caucus in a way to go to one of the caucuses and speak on behalf of Jim Gilmore's candidacy. Now, it turns out Jim Gilmore wasn't even on the ballot uh, because he didn't really register in, in, uh, in, in Iowa. But they allowed me to speak uh, in favor of him so they could do a write-in campaign. Uh, and uh, I spoke, gave this kind of very impassioned speech, uh, which is now online on the National Review article. Uh, I'm not a supporter of Jim Gilmore, but I thought it would be uh, fun to do and fun to experience the caucuses. He got zero votes, by the way. Uh, but, it, I, you know, the point is that I said it was bizarre and worthless, uh, the caucuses. Uh, the caucuses are different than the primaries because it, you, it's not an all-day affair. You have to go to an event. You have to listen to speeches. But basically in Iowa, the, on the Republican side, you come in, you have – you know, in 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 most cases, uh, some very amateur people giving speeches on behalf of a candidate for two minutes. You have to sit there and wait and listen. It's been an hour process, sometimes sometimes longer, and then you vote. But it's hard to imagine a single person's mind has changed uh, going in and listening to some amateur give a speech after they've had you know these campaigns there for months and months giving their message across. So it seems a waste of time there, and in some ways it's undemocratic because a lot of people, you know, not a lot, but some people, you know, work at night. You know, certainly those who are less well off, they can't get off from their jobs to to go sit in a caucus for two hours. If you had a, a single event, a, a single primary where you know you vote all day, they're open. It's not a caucus. Uh, it leaves it open for much many more people who want to participate to participate. Uh, so I'm. I'm not sure the the uh, the usefulness of the caucus anymore. I, I certainly don't favor it. And I want to bring up something you wrote in early 2013, soon after Obama was elected for a second term. You wrote for the Daily Caller that conservative leaders have to be in touch with the culture and argued that part of the reason Obama beat Romney in 2012 was because he connected with the people in a way that Romney did not. You also predicted that conservatives need someone who is, quote, Rubio-esque. What have you seen on the campaign trail to confirm or contradict what you predicted in 2013? Well, I think this whole election cycle has been thrown off by Donald Trump. Uh, I still think that, uh, you know, Mitt Romney's part of his failure was his inability to connect in a way with the culture uh, of of the, the American polity. I mean, pe- people watch reality TV shows. They know references. Mitt Romney probably knew, knew none of that. Rubio, in a way, does know that, and he's having some success. But certainly, Donald Trump has just changed the game. Uh, is he in touch with the culture? He is the culture. I mean, uh, in, in a way, he is a reality TV star. Uh, so I think in some ways this campaign has confirmed what I'm saying, but in other ways, not so much, because it's not quite what I was imagining when I said this, Donald Trump. Uh, but on a very kind of superficial level, he is exactly what the culture is because people used to tune into The Apprentice and watch him. And he, he knows the cultural zeitgeist. He knows how to use Twitter better than anybody. Um, so I, I don't know if I can say this prediction is, or, uh, prediction is right or wrong, but I can tell you it's certainly not what I was thinking when I said that is Donald Trump. Right. Well, we will see how the rest of this campaign goes, because it's the start of what is going to be, I think, a very long year. Jamie Weinstein from The Daily Caller, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for having me. Well, that's a very interesting look at the journalist's perspective in the American political process. Again, thank you very much to Lauren Maffio and Jamie Weinstein. And now we've reached the point of our show, I Predict a Riot, where we share our predictions and prognostications on the future of politics, polling, participation, etc. I'll go first. Uh, So in the last few years, um, the last two years really in particular, we've seen polling be pretty spotty in their predictions. In the UK in 2015, 
there were massive problems with the polling and nobody saw the conservatives winning an outright majority. And then in the uh, presidential primary in 2016, we've, see, we've seen certain polls in states completely get it wrong. Like Michigan predicted that Hillary Clinton was going to win handedly and, and uh, Bernie Sanders eked out a win there. So I, this reminded me of a, of a problem that we've seen more broadly in social science across the board right now. Economic models are not predicting um, future trends as well as they would like. Uh, political science models are also not predicting trends to the extent that we would like them to. And so I think that what we're going to see is sort of a backlash, maybe is the wrong word, but a reaction in the private sector of social science research, also known as political pollsters. And we'll see those pollsters becoming more and more niche in what they research. They're, gonna, they're becoming more specific to the type of research they're going to do, the predictions that they're willing to make, and then more generous with the caveats that they're going to make from the data that they see. Well, I'll go next. And mine sort of, sort of riffing on yours a bit, Denise. Um, so Nate Silver of, of 538 fame has come into a lot of flack recently for massively underestimating Donald Trump's chance of becoming a GOP nominee. I think last November he sort of said it was something about I think it was a five, he gave him a 5% chance that Trump would become the nominee, which obviously hasn't come to pass. And a lot of that, I think, is down to the not knowing who the primary voters are. We talked a bit about that in the discussion. So my prediction is I actually think as we sort of seek into the general election this, uh, this fall, I think polls will probably have a return to form. I think their predictive nature will probably be much more accurate. And so the polls that we'll be seeing mm. as we go into the election will probably be right. Whether or not they show Donald Trump winning, um, I think they'll be more correct. And yeah, that could be terrifying or it could be could be fine. I wonder how much of it has to do with our own expectations of how correct they have to be, really. Possibly, yeah. yeah. All right, well, Sophie? Well, this again kind of echoes both of yours. Um, but it's kind of on the manipulation of polling. And recently, the uh, Republican person... And Coulter um, was talking about how in the past, when Reagan was running in a similar stage of that race, he was polling very similarly to Donald Trump in terms of popularity that was growing, um, and other comparisons have been made in terms of um, that both were quite, uh, both were noted celebrities rather than politicians before entering the race. And um, I see this kind of as a more of a convenient coincidence rather than hopefully any kind of sign for the future. So I think um, we should just be wary of polls at this stage of the race. So this is sort of putting polling into the context of the Mark Twain quote, lies, damn lies, and statistics. (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's time to wrap up this episode of The Ballpark. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Sophie Donselman and Chris Gilson, our interviewees, Larry Jacobs, Daniel Lorison, Jamie Weinstein, and our contributor, Lauren Maffio. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, that's me, with contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson, and also with help from the LSE's High Five Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. We love them. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark or send us an email at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. You can also send us an audio message of up to one minute with your comments. 
We'll feature your opinions, tweets, emails, and audio recordings on an extra innings podcast later this season. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll be talking about criminal justice. Well, as Yogi Berra used to say, it ain't over till it's over. And now it's over. Play ball. I like that one. <laughs>